Jesus' name. So, with that, I'm reading Psalm 123, verses 1 to 4. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And just uh, want to pray for uh, Jonathan as he um, just opens this scripture to us, Lord, that you would open our hearts, Lord, that we can receive hope from you, Lord, that we can um, have our eyes turned to you, hear what you are saying to us, and um, we just pray that you would minister to us as a church through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. All right, so it is okay to be honest as we wait for the rescue that only Jesus can bring. It's actually important that we are honest as we wait for the rescue that only Jesus can bring. Now, Monday morning started off like many other Mondays for me. I returned home from taking the kids to school because I'm a super domestic dad. Um, and I grabbed my coffee, and I was ready to get to work, and I sat down in the chair and opened my bag to grab my iPad, and it wasn't there. Well, that's, that's strange, right? And I looked all over the house, and it made no sense, right? I, it's like, did I leave it at church yesterday, you know, because I didn't necessarily use it in the afternoon on Sunday. Maybe I just left it at church. Um, I, I couldn't figure out if that's what happened. So I opened the Find My Device app, which is a lifesaver when it comes to Apple devices, right? And as I was driving on the way to church to check if it was here, I saw that it actually pinged at the elementary school. And I was like, oh, well, well, that's interesting. And so as I'm driving then now to the elementary school, I start to, in my head, blame the children for being so irresponsible to think that they may have grabbed my iPad off the charging station as they grab their school iPad and put two in their bag. Or better yet, I tried to, in my head, blame my beloved wife, who clearly had picked it up off the table and put it into one of the kids' bags, because that's something she would totally do, right? <laughs> and I, I, te I remember texting her, like, did you put it in somebody's bag? And I'm like, so mad. Like, I want to get to work, and this is the instrument I use to do my study. I try to be super digital and just I use this tool all of the time. And... So I'm at the school, right? I'm asking the staff to go and check the bags of the two kids that go to the elementary school, and they do, right? They even take Ewan out of the library to go back to his classroom to check his bag. She makes him check his bag twice because she knows Ewan, and so it's, but it's not there, right? They check Adia's bag. It's not there, and as they're telling me this, I look again at the Find My Device app, and it seems that the ping is coming from the handicapped spot in the parking lot where I drop the children off each day, right? I'm like, oh, let me go check. And as I walk up to my iPad, there on the ground with a tire mark over its case, it all came back to me. 
Like in that flash, like I, I couldn't remember the morning until that happened. And that morning, I had used the iPad, as I do most mornings, to do my daily Bible reading plan in the Version Bible app. And I carried the iPad outside with me to let one of our beloved dogs do their business in the morning. But while she was doing that, she was getting into something she had not had been in our yard or gotten into. And so I put my iPad on top of our minivan so I could get the scoop and clean up the yard and then get the dog back in the yard. And I cleaned it up, I put the scoop back, and I walked back in the house and got on with the day, feeding the kids, getting them off to school. And so that iPad drove from our house to the middle school on the top of our van and from the middle school to the elementary school where I presume I opened the back of the van to get Adia's walker and it must have bumped the iPad off where either I or multiple other people drove over the iPad, crushing the, the screen. And uh, don't worry, she's okay. She got fixed. She went to the doctor. Now, I, yeah, it, it's not cheap, so don't drive over your iPad. Now, I know this is like a first world problem story, right? It's like, okay, rich guy drops his iPad, right? Sorry for that. That's, that's where my life was this week. But I, I was struck that my Monday, or maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe you've spilled all of the communion elements on the floor and had to clean the church kitchen before service or something else along those lines. Something happens and that becomes just a picture of our existence, doesn't it? I don't always drive over iPads, but some days feel like I do. Right? There's a difficulty or trauma or even just anxiety in our lives of what we have to face in any given day and events don't go our way and we want to then what do we do? Blame somebody else or blame a situation. And really, it's just us that's to blame. And it just becomes this feeling that kind of just sits in the pit of your stomach. And you have to wrestle with it because it's a little bit out of your control. You can't fix it in the moment, but you've experienced this difficulty in too many days that are like that. And we end up to the place where we can't take it anymore. Right? And maybe that's where you're at this morning. There's just been enough that it's like, I can't do it anymore. I have had enough of the contempt. And here we are in Advent, the season of waiting before Christmas. And it is actually meant in the church calendar to be the device that exposes that feeling in anticipation of the incarnation of Christ's return to dwell with us again. One great Anglican preacher, Fleming Rutledge, she says, the entire thrust of this season at the end of the church year is designed to bring us face to face with reality. Reality about sin and death. Reality about the human race. Reality about God. Something ultimate has entered our world. Something or someone that calls us to attention, calls us out of our daily preoccupations and our routine points of view. And that is what this season with its special biblical readings is designed to reveal. So here we are, Reservoir Church, entering into what I'm calling a long advent because I needed a couple added weeks that I hope don't cut too much into your thankfulness around Thanksgiving, right? But it's really timely 
year round for us to have just a recognition of the anticipation and longing for Christ to intervene in the midst of our world and our lives. You should know our house is already decorated for Christmas, which I've, I've tried to change that. The trees are up, which it's plural. We live in a 900 square foot home. I don't know how there's space for it, but it works somehow, right? And with all of the tinsel has come the sounds of Christmas as well, right? Christmas music. Has anybody else started playing Christmas music? Some of you are like, yeah, in July, right? No? Do you wait till Thanksgiving? When do you start? Oh, you're, you're real Christians. Yeah, okay. Let's see how it is. And it, we might even sing some of those songs before Thanksgiving. Watch out, worship leaders. That's permission to do that. Derry and Judy will stand outside. But, but you might as well give it a try, right? But we also then in our long Advent, I want to use songs as our guide through this season as we wait to celebrate Christ's arrival. In our waiting for our King, in need of His grace, in using from Scripture some melodic reminders of who is actually enthroned over everything. And so for this whole Advent season, we will be in the Psalms. And we begin here with this pilgrim psalm of Psalm 123, a song of ascent for the congregation of God's people to sing as they go up from wherever they live to Jerusalem, to the temple for worship. And this morning, I want to take the text essentially backwards in the order it comes and see what the Lord will have for us. And we start with, it's okay to be honest. And Psalm 123, we have to understand, is a community lament. And I'm so thankful for our church. And I was just even, I was coaching a young pastor this week. And I, you know, we were talking about aesthetics in the church and how everybody looks and sounds on the worship team. And I had relayed to him that I just thank the Lord because I have never had to stress about having a worship leader on a Sunday morning, that we just have faithful people that want to serve and would bring songs. And then Lawrence texts me yesterday and says, how weird would it be if we didn't have a worship leader tomorrow? Because I'm not feeling great. So, But part of his leadership is bringing just the regular singing of laments. Like, and you have to understand that that's rare. You can't go to a lot of churches and sing lament songs of difficulty in life and trusting in the Lord, though he slay us. Like that, that evidently doesn't build churches because the big ones don't sing a song like that, right? But it's true and it's right because the Psalms are full of them. And so we're living this experience of community, community laments. We are recognizing how to do that with each other. And this psalm goes beyond, though, simply asking for a safe journey, because they could have sung that, you know, Lord, bring us to Jerusalem that we might worship you. It actually seeks relief from us, the scorn they're experiencing. This visible sign of God's mercy, which might even benefit those that are showing scorn. They're asking for mercy, for rescue from that stuff. And Christians as those that have gone through the journey of life in our own ascending to Jesus should have no difficulty in praying in the exact same way that the congregation does here in Psalm 123. 
Now, we don't know for sure the circumstance that led to the creation of this song. Maybe the worshipers were harassed by some Gentiles around them or even harassed by unfaithful Jews that were mad because they were rich and full of contempt towards these faithful ones that would stop their work and take time to go and worship. But whatever the exact reason for this lament, they have had enough and they need rescue in this moment, and they say so to God. Like This isn't just commiserating with each other. This is sung to the one who sits enthroned above all things, right? And keep in mind, this is a worship song with the express purpose of priming them for a feast. So it's normative for the congregation to be honest, to express what they're experiencing. And they sing, have mercy upon us, O Lord, O Yahweh, right? Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now I wonder, like, where do we even start the list? The things that feel like scorn or contempt in our day. And we have a full list in 2023, don't we? There's war, there's disease, incompetence of those who are supposed to lead us, economic realities which we don't even fully understand but affect everyone around us and ourselves. Right? Relationships that have covenantal bonds around us seem to be ruined. The weight of our purpose just seems too heavy in the moment. Uh, you can have children, like period, right? There's cancer, there's aging, there's anxiety, there's just this general angst with our experience in this moment. And that's just a list for all of us. Like, I wonder what's on your list. And then following Jesus adds a layer to everything and how people perceive us, right? Because we live sacrificially, we go to church with people, we confess sin, we take of bread and the cup as symbols of Christ's body and blood, and to everybody out there, we're just totally sus. See how hip I am, Only right? No, she's like, that didn't work. I'm trying to be hip. Right, but all of that, like, piled on just leads us to exasperation, doesn't it? And if you haven't been exasperated lately, you're, you're better than me. So our souls have had more than enough, and the worshipers here, they say so. They're honest about it. But for some reason in the church, we always have to put on a good face. Right? Do you, do you feel that? Do you sense that sometimes? We hate when the government makes mask mandates, but we live almost exclusively wearing metaphorical ones. That's tweetable. Come on. Right? We don't want to seem needy or we're too proud for the truth to come out of our experience. And the reality of the human condition is that there is always someone worse off than you, but that doesn't remove or cheapen your need for rescue. And a posture of just keeping up appearances will always dim our eyes and lead us to miss life as we are supposed to have it. And truth is, the pastors can be the, like, the worst at this, right? I used to be far less gentle than I am now. 
And I would go to these pastor meetings, and maybe I've talked about this before, and certainly with some of you. I, I know my men's Bible study, we make fun of this all the time, right? But you go to these meetings, and other pastors ask you how things are going. And um, by that time, I'd learned that you had to say how great you were, or at least that you were fine, right? You, weren't ex- you were not supposed to, in those settings, have any problems. And I can tell you, some of them are getting better. Like, they're, <laughs> they're becoming more honest. But I would... Uh, often answer when someone says, how are things going? And I'd be like, I can't handle it. I'm so weak. I'm just hanging on by a thread. You know, and then you'd pause, and they'd be like, they're terrible. Pastors can be terrible counselors because some of them are just looking at you like, I don't know what to say. Oh, how was your golf game? You know, that's that's where they want to go. But then in their look of surprise, I always respond, but that thread is Jesus like super Jesus juke, right? But I mean, there's this posture that's like we have to have it all together. We have to say how great things are. But that doesn't match the song in Scripture. And this song, and so many more like it, established that it is okay, or even more than that, it's expected that we would be honest about our experience and honest about the world that is pushing in on us, honest about our own sin and foolishness. And some of us just read in our yearly reading, Lamentations, right? And there's honesty there in the wake of exile. And I love what one commentary said about Lamentations 5 in particular that some of us discussed in small group this week. It says, Lamentations guides our lips and our hearts in how to relate to this world. On the one hand, we are to take the horrors of this fallen world with utter seriousness, and Christians of all people should not be frivolous or trite, given our doctrine of creation, the fall, and original sin. Yet on the other hand, the redemptive purposes of God in his grace get down even underneath the weight of sin and fallenness. Christ has himself gone through suffering and death and has come out on the other side. He has conquered every final reason for us to throw our hands up in the air. And in him, kindness appeared in the tangible human form, yet not kindness that ignores evil and sadness. This was a steely kindness that came for the very purpose of overcoming all evil and sadness. That's what we look to as we wait for Christ to return. And that's what we look to as we're honest about our experience in this moment. And some of us are coming into this holiday season with this type of weight. And you have to know it is okay to be honest about it. To let the community carry the weight with you. To lament alongside you. Because the sweetness of Advent might be missed if we aren't honestly acquainted with the sour of life in our age. So it's okay to be honest. It's part of our waiting. So I invite you to it. Not only are we honest, we wait for rescue from rescue. Now we have something that these first singers didn't when we read Psalm 123. When they cry out for mercy, for God to be gracious to them, we have actually seen his greatest act of mercy and grace in the first arrival of Jesus. 
It's the story that we live to tell, right? Humanity created in the image of God is meant for enjoying him in community forever. Instead, we fall for the lure of being God ourselves. And from an act of disobedience, humanity is sent out of the garden to toil in pain, to experience the brokenness of a corrupt creation and where humanity disregards God, however, he does not regard us. And then he chooses a people to announce what life with him looks like. And even in their unfaithfulness, he is faithful. So faithful that he comes himself, the son, as a baby to experience all of humanity and to live this perfect, sinless life, a life that he would sacrifice for us, taking on a judgment that our sin deserves. And in doing so, granting to all those who believe forgiveness and a future with him. Eternal life with him. And Jesus has taken on then, when we sing this song, all of the contempt, the shame, our sin, and the scorn of the world. And he says, it is finished. It is dealt with. And so forgiveness is yours. New life is yours. Freedom is yours. That Anglican minister, Fleming Rutledge, says the mercy of God does not depend on human virtue for its fulfillment. It depends on Christ for its fulfillment. He is the mercy of God for us. And that rescue then empowers us as we eagerly await his return. To set everything right, to finally and fully heal, to wipe every tear from our eyes, to change the world for all of eternity, right? And it's then growing in this truth that he came and rescued us and then becoming enthused, brought to life by his spirit that we wait for what is promised. That Paul will write in Ephesians to that church, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we are honest, certainly when we sing, but we sing a little different because we're indwelt by the Spirit now, announcing that we're children of God, that we are actually those that have experienced His mercy and we need new portions of it to face what we face. Because we still feel like we need rescue from all that is opposed to him and his way. And I think the idea matches how salvation is actually talked about in the New Testament because Paul always uh, talks about, as a key author of the New Testament, he uses different tenses when he's talking about salvation. Right? Have you ever recognized that, right? By grace you have been saved. So there's kind of a past situation. The cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. So it's a present reality of being saved. And as he says in Romans 5, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's a future orientation to this salvation. 
One scholar, Derek Thomas, says, Why then does the New Testament speak of salvation in three tenses? And the answer lies in considering what happens in salvation. Initially, at the point of regeneration, our sins are forgiven entirely and completely, and we've been delivered from sin's penalty. Then through faith, we are reckoned to be righteous, as righteous as Christ in is, and then there is sanctification, a process whereby we are being delivered from sin's power and ultimately in heaven we'll be delivered from sin's presence. As John Stott has argued that when Paul reasoned with the governor Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, he was pointing out all three tenses of salvation. Now, every stage, justification, sanctification, and our coming glorification, we come with empty hands crying for mercy from our Heavenly Father. And we are in the in-between, in need of mercy, still as we make this journey, but we cry out for it knowing that He's already delivered that which we needed and he has promised to pour out all the more that we would be fully and finally saved in Christ. And as we journey, the song says we keep a close eye. We tether ourselves to that salvation. So psalmist writes, Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The context here with its repetition of the worshiper's eyes as descriptors that are directed to the Lord shows that the image is that of those waiting patiently and trustingly for God to act. And the psalm is concerned with gaining God's help in the experience of life. With eyes peeled, we become then obedient, trusting, looking to the Lord for provision in the midst of life now and we do it in community we do it in prayer and we do it in the word seeing his promise unfold before us so this psalm enables pilgrims to pray for safety and for relief and it also sharpens our commitment to the journey that we know is costly and dangerous as it can be salvation as we often think of it it just is like your sin is handled and you go to heaven. But that's not actually all there is. The kingdom is ever expanding to bring his peace in the midst of ashes, leading us onward back to the garden to dwell with God forever. And honesty helps us see how good that truth is. The rescue we've already experienced helps us trust his promise and power to actually deliver upon what he says he is doing. The incarnation of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is good, but what is to come is beyond our imaginations. And may that give you buoyancy as we wait. We just end in where this psalm starts with the reality that only Jesus can do this. Only the one who is already rescued can provide rescue again. Only the one who sits enthroned above all things can hear us honestly cry out for mercy and provide it for us. When the world says that we should look within or suggest that we put our hope in the schemes of man, this song reminds us where to actually look. And they sing, to you I lift up my eyes, oh, who are in, you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
John Calvin, he's, you know, popular with the hipsters these days. He says, these words seem to contain a tacit contrast between the troubled and confused state of this world and God's heavenly kingdom, from whence he so manages and governs all things that whenever it pleases him, he calms all the agitations of the world, comes to the rescue of the desperate and the despairing, restores light by dispelling, dispelling darkness, and raises up such as were cast down and laid prostrate on the ground. This the psalmist confirms by the, the verb he uses, lift up, which intimates that although all worldly resources fail us, we must raise our eyes upward to heaven where God remains unchangeably the same. Despite the madness of men in turning all things here below upside down. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And you have to understand that Jesus is the answer to this prayer. He is the deliverance of mercy. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthian church, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I take this to mean that he is the answer to the promises to hear people's cries for help. And his arrival answers our hurt and our needs in that moment. Peter would say concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So even those that are singing on their way to Jerusalem are laying the groundwork for you to recognize Christ is the one who brings mercy for you. So now when we go and ask for mercy, we can look to him with confidence in who he is and what he's done for us, expectant for what is yet to come. This week, Phil was reminding some of us of Eugene Peterson's birthday. He's been dead now for a number of years, but it just like marked this saint that had served in the church. And he has a quote from a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction about following Jesus. He says, the main difference between Christians and others is that we take God seriously and they do not. We really do believe that he is the central reality of all existence. We really do pay attention to what he is and what he does. We really do order our lives in response to that reality and not to some other. Paying attention to God involves a realization that he works. We have that realization because we've experienced the rescue that he provides. And so he is the answer to our experience. He is the king we need to rule and to rescue us. He is the way, the truth, and the life that we sing about as we gather. As Paul would say to the Colossian church, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You're not praying to mercy to some carved out deity that sits on the shelf of someone somewhere. You pray to the creator of the universe. 
the one who steps down from his throne and claims you by his life and death on the cross for you. So here, those faithful to the Lord await the good that he and only he can give. To God and God alone, they lift up their eyes. There is good news proclaimed from God to his people. But this good news of grace and strength and salvation is found in, the, in only one place and through only one Lord. Only he who is enthroned in the heavens is worthy of our trust and only he can deliver. And indeed, as the climax of all history, God did indeed deliver by sending his own son so that sinners may be right with God based on what Christ has done. Lord, pour out your mercy because we've experienced your mercy. As Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. He is the way. His promise to return for us still stands. And this song follows others, and together they crescendo in the reality of a God who is enough for us. So we wait honestly from his great rescue of our souls, eager for eternity, knowing he is the only one that can deliver. And this is just a picture of what he's going to deliver. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what we wait for this long Advent. So it's okay to be honest as we wait for the rescue that only Jesus can bring. Recently, when I was up at that retreat at Idlewild, I hiked to the top of this hill that is at the retreat center, but I came back down to pray, and it was actually in that lower place that I felt the peaceful presence of God and what I actually described to others in that moment as a disruptive peace. It disrupted the contempt and the scorn of the world in that moment and just brought his peace. But in describing that moment to the other men that were gathered at that retreat center, I said that I ascended down the hill. And I, I know that that doesn't make sense grammatically, and I'm, I'm prone to that. That happens occasionally. But spiritually, I think it makes perfect sense because we come to the lower place to lift our eyes, honest about all of this, anchored in the hope we have in Jesus. So, beloved, take heart. You are not alone. You are on your way home. Lift your eyes to the one seated on the throne in the heavens. May Almighty God, by whose providence our Savior Christ came among us in great humility, sanctify you with the light of his blessing and set you free from all sins. 
Amen. May he whose second coming in power and great glory we await make you steadfast in faith, joyful in hope, and constant in love. Amen. May you who rejoice in the first advent of our Redeemer at his second advent be rewarded with eternal life. Amen. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Good and holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the model uh, that you've given us in this pilgrim song of being those that would cry out to you, lift our eyes to you, seeking mercy in the midst of the scorn. Lord, we cry out not from a place of never having experienced your mercy, but instead having experienced your rescue through the work of Christ for us on the cross. Lord, make us a people that are comfortable being honest because we've been rescued. And we know that you are the only one that can bring the rescue we still need. Work that in our lives for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take of communion together as we do each